That this is mine and that is yours is the reckoning of those of small minds. But to those whose lives are noble, the whole world is one family. Do you realize how fortunate we are in this country? Sri Ramakrishna had 16 or 17 monastic disciples, and five of them came to the United States. Just imagine. Well, we are hearing every day, every week, about Swami Vivekananda in one way or another. So I'm not talking about Swamiji this morning. I'm talking about the other four, the four that we don't know quite so well as we know him. And uh, I expect to uh, tell you a little more than you might have known before. But uh, they are Swami, Sarva, uh, Swami Saradananda, Swami Turiyananda, Swami Abhedananda, and Swami Trigunatitharananda. And the first is Swami Saradananda. This was a young man who came to Sri Ramakrishna, and uh, the master asked him, what is your ideal? And he said, I want to see the divine in every living being. And Sri Ramakrishna said, well, you can't uh, do that right away. And uh, Sharat said, well, I'll plug along until I do. <laughs> The master was very pleased at that answer. Uh, he was a great friend of Swamiji's. They were, they were pals, you could say, and uh, they were so close that uh, some people used to call them the cup and the saucer. And Swamiji was the cup and the Saradananda was the saucer. <laughs> uh, uh, he was called by Swamiji in, 19, in uh, 1896 to come to the West. He knew he had a back, good background in education and he had a, uh, a spiritual uh, uh, allegiance that would be serving him the rest of his life. So he called on him to come and uh, help him in the West, particularly starting in London. And uh, the Swami Saradananda was very reluctant to do that. He would not. He said, "I'm. No, I have no, no practice in speaking. I'm not a speaker. I have no spirituality, and so on." Kept saying those things. Finally, he went to Holy Mother, and told her, "Look, uh, Naran has asked me to uh, go to the West and help him in his public work. I can, how can I do that?" And she said in spite of the loss to her, because he was helping her, go. Naran has called you, you go. He will help you with everything you need. So he, he came. He went to London, and uh, he uh, arrived there before Swamiji. Swami uh, Vivekananda was coming from America. And Swami Sardananda arrived first, and he went to the home of Mr. Sturdy, 
who was a, already a disciple of Vivekananda, uh, and they were in a suburb of London. And the first thing that, that the two Swamis did after they met was to learn to ride a bicycle. And Mr. Sturdy said there was nothing so funny as to see these two corpulent figures uh, trying to balance on bicycles in the countryside. So that was his introduction to uh, the West. His life in London, Swami Sahajananda's life in London, was very subservient to Swamiji. They lived in the same rented houses or loaned houses, and uh, uh, they were uh, uh, very happy there and chummy together in those places. In the, he, but he was very subservient. He was like a little dog. He said, I'm like a little puppy at the heels of Swamiji. And uh, uh, one night, something happened that was surprising for Swami Sardinana. Uh, Swamiji opened the door and said, I want to introduce to you uh, a, a gentleman of my acquaintance. And the man came in dressed in British clothes, top hat and all that, and very properly dressed. And uh, said, uh, introduced him to uh, Swami Sardananda. And uh, Swami Sardananda was a little bit suspicious because he thought he knew the voice. And so the man took off his hat, and it was Swami Abhinananda. <laughs> that was a Vivekananda joke. <laughs> well, he began writing the biography of Sri Ramakrishna. You know, that great book, The Great Master. He began writing it in London, his time in London. It took, of course, years to write it. But he... Uh, uh, he started it, and he did some of his research there. And now, of course, he was in a position, Swamiji felt, to, uh, to take a new post, and he sent him to the United States. He, he, he got Goodwin, uh, his faithful secretary, to accompany him and go to uh, the um, United States and take up work in New York. Swamiji had founded, you know, in this country, two centers, one in New York and one in San Francisco. These are the only two centers that were founded by Vivekananda. So the work in London, in, in New York, was going on, and uh, Swamiji uh, entrusted it to uh, Saradananda, and he headed the New York Vedanta Society for more than two years. He made a special friend of people and of a family in New Jersey. This family were the Wheelers. Their name was Wheeler. And uh, he was, uh, it was his home away from home. Swami Shardananda was naturally lonely. And uh, he had uh, made friends with the Wheelers. And he mixed with them and learned a great deal about uh, America, just as Swamiji had learned from the Hale House, from the Hale Sisters. So he learned from the Wheelers. And uh, he did a lot of interfaith work. Swami Saradananda went to the Green Acre Conference, set two, two years in a row, and uh, did uh, uh, spoke, and of course, he mixed with the other religious leaders, and uh, did uh, noble 
work in interfaith. He mixed with Swamiji's great friends, the ones that had known Swamiji, like that made important people like William James, and uh, the uh, professors at uh, Harvard. He, he was invited also. To, he also spoke at Harvard, by the way. And uh, he mixed with these people. And he, people afterwards were as, asked to describe the difference between the two Swamis. What was the main difference between Swami Vivekananda and Swami Sardananda? And uh, the answer was always that the difference was between the sun and the moon. Swamiji Vivekananda was the blazing sun of knowledge. And uh, Swami Sardananda was the cool moon of meditation and devotion. And he made that contrast between them. Well, eventually, Swami Vivekananda called him back, and back to uh, India, because the order had been formed, and a good foundation had been formed for the work of the order. And Swamiji knew that Saradananda was the prime person to take up the managing of that work. So he called him back to, from America to uh, India and installed him as the uh, secretary of his organization. Swami Brahmananda was the president and Swami Sarananda was the general secretary and he had to do the major part of the organizing of the Indian work. That was entrusted to him. And so he left uh, in January of 98, and on the way home, Swami Sharadananda visited uh, Europe. He saw France, Italy, and in Italy he went to St. Paul's Cathedral and had samadhi in that cathedral. That's a very interesting fact. He told people afterwards, I had Samadhi in St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, he spent the rest of his life in India. He became Holy Mother's servant and guardian. He had two houses built for her, one in Jairambati, her village, and one in uh, Calcutta which was Odbotan now. And he did everything that he could to make Holy Mother's life convenient and cheerful and happy and uh, supportive. And he was the contact person for the West. Whenever problems came up at the Mott and in the work of, in India, Everyone would come to Sharadananda and, and apply for advice on uh, matters that pertain to the West. And he would know the people to talk to and to write to and how to make arrangements with Westerners. His outstanding features as a personality were gentleness and dignity. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, 
characteristic of man, the real characteristic of man, is dignity. No one who does not have dignity can call himself a man. Well, Swami Shayadananda embodied it. And he was gentle, he very seldom scolded. Swami Asheshananda, whom some of you might know, knew, and I knew, uh, wrote a semi-biography of him and uh, tells about how he never was scolded, he was never upbraided, he, he was always up and up, and, uh, cheerful and gentle, pleading in his requests to these disciples, to his students. One day, when Swami Vivekananda had come back to India, he was walking with Swami Sharadananda to the bank or some such place, some office, government office. And you know how Swamiji was. He would get impatient with his brother disciples and his disciples. And he would upbraid, scold, criticize, everything that he could to get a rise out of. And he, on the way home from this uh, business, he started scolding Sharadananda right and left, gave him all kinds of insults, and told him he was a fool and he was doing everything wrong. Swami, Sharadananda, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, never said a word, never talked back, just smiled and walked along. Swamiji turned to him and said, Ah, you have the blood of a fish. He gave a very nice piece of advice to us who work in the West. He said, when you work in the West, he told it to his, his younger, younger brothers who were going over, among the monastic brothers. You'll go over there. Some people will call you a prince, a god, elevate you to the skies. Others will condemn you with words of damnation. You must know all the time, all you are is just another worker in the Lord's vineyard. That puts it pretty well. And we must move on and talk about Swami Turyananda. So we had two years and a little more of the service of Sarasananda in New York, mostly, New Jersey. <clears throat> Swami Turiyananda was a contemplative. He was austere and yet very loving. Now that's a nice combination to consider. How can you be austere and yet loving? Well, one has to read his life, his letters, his counsels, and his uh, biography. You have to read about him to know what it means to be austere and yet very loving. Swami Turiyananda read the Bhagavad Gita every morning straight through before breakfast. <laughs> maybe you have a couple of chapters, or maybe you have a few verses that you read before breakfast, like me, but he read the whole Gita before he would take a single bite. 
So Swamiji Vivekananda wanted him, above all brothers, he wanted him to come to the West to be the example. He said, I want to show Americans what a, what a real sadhu yogi can be. I want to show Americans the very best that, that India has to offer in the way of a holy man. Just living the life. Needn't be a lecturer, but just live the life. He said, the West needs to see the picture of an ideal yogi. Swami Turiyananda, as I uh, told you, came first to England. They all came by way through London. That's the way they came. And uh, went to New York. And he took up the work that Swami Sharadananda had left in going back to India. And uh, Swami Turiyananda uh, spoke at Harvard. He was intellectual enough to be uh, called upon to do that. He wasn't a great lecturer, but he managed somehow to carry on for a year in New York, giving the, the classes and lectures, and uh, meeting important people. And he stayed with that family in New Jersey, the Wheeler family, and became acquainted with them. Swami Turiyananda brought with him seeds, seeds and plants, to plant in, uh, uh, in America. I don't know what happened to them. I'm sorry, I can't report to you on uh, what, whether they were successful or not, but he uh, at least had the thought to do that. And then comes, now comes the story of Shanti Ashram. You must know that there are properties which the government holds, which are for sale very inexpensive, very cheap. And those properties are way out in the boondocks. They're properties nobody, nobody really wants, but uh, that's why they're cheap. And so uh, a devotee had bought one of those properties and had not occupied it. And she turned it over to Swamiji as a gift, as a donation. And Swamiji said, all right, I'll accept it. It's way out in the desert. It's hot in summer and cold in winter. And it's not a place where people will want to live. But anyway, Swami Turiyananda is a good scout, good scout. And he will go and live and start the Shanti Ashram. I don't know whether some of you have visited it. There is an annual pilgrimage to the ashram, and uh, I have been there only twice in my life. But uh, it is a, a 160 acres in the San Antonio Valley, six miles from all the water supply. And uh, in that, on that property, one reached it one reached that property by a four-horse stagecoach with supplies. One dozen people enlisted. People who had heard Suryananda Swami speaking in San Francisco or had known him in some other way. One of them was our own Ujala, some, some of you here will remember. A dozen people went with him to camp 
make the first encampment on that property so far away from civilization and so difficult to live in. It was oppressively hot in summer and oppressively cold in winter, and they had to provide for both. The first night that the uh, dozen people arrived on that property, they slept by a haystack, big haystack, men on one side, the women on the other. <laughs> that was the first night on Ashanti Ashram. There were classes, meditation, and lots of work. Swami Turiyananda adjusted and adapted himself to the West well enough to be able to conduct the forming of a camp, the uh, building of a kitchen, sort of, sort of kitchen, where they could have meals. He gave classes there. He taught meditation in the meditation cabin. He organized and supervised the work of the men and the women. Imagine, imagine coming to a foreign country and being able to do all that in a place like that. It's a story you must read if you haven't read it. I hope someday some of you may be able to go there and take in the annual pilgrimage. As a note of relief, he did vacation for a little while on Santa Catalina. But Swami Turiyananda became ill. I think he had diabetes, uh, like so many uh, of his generation, and uh, he suffered from it greatly, and the climates that he was in there, there didn't help him any. And he also experienced opposition. You can imagine, I mean, he, he separated the men from the women. They ate in the same dining room, but the men were on one side and women were on the other side. And uh, they all uh, meditated together and they all had their classes together, but he was very strict, very strict. He didn't want any conversation except about God. Well, that's a, that's a trial for any of us. And uh, he uh, had Indian standards of behavior and austerity. But ultimately, he faced opposition from the campers at Shanti Ashram. And he, combined with his illness, he gave up and said, I wrote to Swamiji, I can't take it anymore. I've got to to come home. I'm too ill to do this work, and I'm not fit for it. And so he left in 1902. That means he was in America from uh, in 1900, 1902, two, two full years or more. In India, Swami Turiyananda was asked to teach yoga to the recruits. See, Swamiji had recruited a large number of well, a small, number, a small number of very devoted followers, young men who were Bengalis and uh, 
physical yoga was not well known in Bengal at that time. Swamiji knew that their bodies needed to be restored to normal uh, activity and uh, to be strengthened. And he told Turyananda, you are the yogi. You, shall, you will now give classes to the new swamis in yoga. And of course he gave other classes too. But that was not a life that Turyananda wanted. And he began wandering again. He was a natural forest wanderer, a natural ascetic going off to live alone and depend upon the Lord to supply everything for him. And his wandering life again began. He met Gandhiji, and he approved of uh, Gandhi's methods and, and his message. He met a number of holy people, but in 1922, his illness took him off. And let me tell you, describe to you his passing, because it's most, most dramatic. He was lying in bed in his sick bed, his final bed, and he said to his attendants, Sit me up, sit me up. Said, no, no, Maharaj, you shouldn't sit up. It won't be good for you. Sit me up, he said. Put me up. So he, they put him into sitting posture, and he said, Now the prana is leaving the feet. Now the prana is leaving the knees. The prana has come to the chest region. The prana has come to the neck, and he went off. That's how he died. Our third Swami is Swami Abhedavanda. <clears throat> this is really a, a conundrum because he spent the most time in America of any of them, and we know the least about it. The reason is that he did not send bulletins back to Belomont. He worked as an independent, very much an independent. He always was an independent. In Baranagore Mott, they gave him his own room to study in and meditate in. He was just a loner, and uh, he, when he became a monk here, when he became a teacher here, he formed his own uh, kind of following, and his, made his own disciples, and he didn't report back to Belomont. So we know very little, really, about his uh, life here. He was a scholar and a wandering monk. And I told you about his arrival in London, all when Swamiji clothed him in British uh, attire and then introduced him to Swami Sardinanda. Um, he stayed uh, in, that was in 1896. He stayed there 
and uh, for a while to learn from Swami Vivekananda how to behave in the West. He had never given a public speech, so he gave his first uh, one there, and it was very successful. He was in London for one year under Swamiji, and then Swamiji sent him to New York to take up the work which Swami Sharananda and Swami Turiyananda had had to abandon. So the New York Society was headed at this time now by uh, Swami Abhedananda. He had Sunday school classes in New York, which is interesting. He taught the children stories from the Panchatantra and the Hitopadesha, and I'm sure on, that was on Saturday afternoons, and I'm sure their Saturday afternoons were much better spent than some Saturday afternoons are now. Anyway, um, in 1897, uh, he went there uh, to New York to replace Swami, the other Swamis, and as head and began his public work about which we know only too little. Somehow he managed to cross the Atlantic Ocean 17 times. We don't know what he was, where he was going, except that he had disciples and friends in all of the European, popular European countries. He also spoke, we know, in Alaska, in Canada, in Mexico. So you see, it was a kind of follow-up of Swami Vivekananda. He met the same kinds of people and some of the same people. He met William James and had a discussion with him which lasted for two or three hours. And William James, the philosopher and psychologist, you know, and uh, William James, probably the most famous American psychologist of that period. At the end of this discussion between him and Abhedananda, James said, I can't disagree with your argument. You win the argument. It was about Advaita Vedanta, how this whole universe is just really one being, and there was no division, no Advaita. He said, I can't dispute your conclusion, but I still don't believe it. <laughs> I still don't believe it. No. You can't just be an enlightened when you see the point of an argument. He was invited to Columbia University, Harvard University, Yale, Cornell. He met and talked with all of their professors. He met Edison, the inventor, in his laboratory. Swami Abhedananda was a fine, fine orator. His, if you read his speeches, they run so smoothly. You can hardly believe, believe that an, an Indian, a person born in India, would be able to speak such smooth English. And, uh, but that's the way it was. He, he, he never had any problem as a, 
as a speaker or a teacher. He was a, a little diffident. He was he backed off from people, and he wasn't he wasn't intimate with people. He kept his own uh, counsel, but he could talk on any subject. He had a different view on evolution from that of the scriptures. I think that's very interesting. The uh, Upanishads say that in reincarnation, it's possible for the soul to go back to the lower levels, the animal levels, come back and start up. And Swami Abhedananda taught that once you reach the human level, you don't go back. We can talk about that afterwards in the, in the library, in the living room. <clears throat> he bought 370 acres in the Berkshires, Berkshire Hills of Connecticut. We don't even know now exactly where that was. He made an ashram there, an ashrama that lasted for nine years. Who are those people? Where are they? We only know one. She wrote a book, thank goodness. Sister Shivani was his chief disciple. She wrote a book about all this. And so that's why we know as much as we do. I'm telling you what she wrote. It didn't last more than nine years because apparently he did not want to make a foundation over here. He did not expect to make something that would last. And as in all such places, there are internal and internecine warfare going on and struggles between people. An ashram is a very difficult thing to maintain, very difficult. And that uh, it lasted nine years is to its credit. He came to Southern California, and here in our area, there is no clear record of what he did. He knew the Mead sisters. So he went to the Pasadena house. He lived in the Pasadena house. We know that. And uh, he was very intimate with the uh, devotees there who had been formed in Swamiji's time. He spoke in two places that I don't know. Uh, the Burbank Theater Building. I doubt if that even exists now. But that is one of the places where he is uh, recorded to have spoken Southern California, the Burbank Theater Building. He also worked in San Francisco. And after a year in San Francisco in the area and in Los Angeles, going back and forth on the train, I suppose, uh, he finally, after this long career in our country, Swami Abhedananda headed back to India after what, 21 years. In India, he tried to live at Belormot, 
as you would be expected to do, but it didn't work. He had gotten used to American diet and the comforts and conveniences of American life after 21 years here. And he, I'm fr I think, frankly, we have to say he couldn't take the austerity of Belle Ormont, the diet and so on. And so he used his seniority, his prestige, to form his own organization. It's called the Vedanta Mott, and it exists in Calcutta even to this day. He made his own sannyasins, gave uh, vows to brahmacharis and sannyasins. So in a sense, he erected his uh, parallel organization, though much smaller, of course, and uh, he, he taught and, and uh, trained sannyasins who carried on after him, primarily Swami Pramodhyananda. And he lived until 1939. He was the last of Sri Ramakrishna's disciples to pass away. So I, 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 I have, in answer to the question, why don't we know more about this, all of this? There are two views. His own disciples have said there was no self-promotion in him. He did not want to uh, leave anything in his own name in this country. And the other view is that uh, inadvertently he failed to form a lasting foundation in America so that uh, nothing survived, survived him here. And our fourth and last Swami is Swami Trigunathita. <clears throat> our Trigunathita Nanda. He, got, he took the name Trigunathita Nanda, one who has gone beyond the three gunas, one who has the bliss of having gone beyond the three gunas. And the Swamiji said to him, Brother, your name is a little too long to handle. Take off some of it. <laughs> so he, he left, dropped it, and made it Trigunatita. And it is as it is as Swami Trigunatita that he is known in San Francisco and just about everywhere else. He arrived in San Francisco to take charge of the center that Swamiji had founded in 1903, rather later than the others. And when he arrived, there were exactly 25 students. Just imagine, well, we do things like that today. We send people out where there are only a few people. And it shouldn't be too surprising that there were 25 stalwart people ready to take lessons from a new Swami, from a Swami. See, Swami Turiananda had worked there, and Swami uh, Abhedrananda had worked there, so there was a kind of nucleus, but uh, Swami Trikunatita was put in charge. First thing, one of the first things he did was to make a monastery. 
I had the privilege of joining in that monastery. Not in his time. <laughs> no, not in his time. But the monastery which he made in 19-something, three or four, still exists there. There has been somebody of a monastic uh, vow living there continuously, one or another, from the very founding of the time. Swami Ashokananda was very adamant about the fact that there had never been a break in the monastic life of that place. And of course, the great story about that monastery is that one of its members lived to be an old man who had left the monastery at the death of Trigunatiya, married, had a child, and lived as a, a printer and a businessman, and then came back to the monastery and picked up his monastic life again. I knew him very well. His name was Mr. Brown, and he became a very, uh, very, uh, what should I say, notorious, <laughs> very highly uh, described individual, let's put it that way. One day, Mr. Brown, he was called Sajjana by the Swami. He found himself falling asleep, and he lay down on the floor and fell asleep. And when he woke up, he found that all the chairs in the room been piled on top of him. That was Swami Trigunatita. <laughs> he had done that. Another side of his character, a woman came in to serve him. She had cleaning to do in his room and in the center. And she regularly came and cleaned. Well, one Easter, one Easter season, she came in with a hat, and you know those old hats, flowers and feathers and all those things on top. And she set it down on a table while she got ready to work. And he started talking to her vigorously, telling her now this and that, and you must take care of this, and Swami Vivekananda wanted that, and so on and so on. And he brought his fist down on that hat. <laughs> and she said, oh, Swami. And he said, yes, I have ruined one expensive hat, and I have killed one ego forever. What do you think of that? Don't you want, don't you want your ego killed that way? <laughs> well, he had a cupboard, a favorite cupboard, to which he, in the, you know, one of those long cupboards that in old-fashioned houses, you, know, you don't know what they're for, but they're just thin and long. <laughs> And he opened, he used to go to that cupboard and open it and peer inside. And one of the monastery monks asked him one day, Swamiji, why, why do you go and look in that closet? And he said, as a child, 
I was very much afraid of spiders. And now I go and look into that closet and reassure myself that I am no longer afraid of spiders. I know these stories because they came down from way back in the monastery. I want to read a quotation which puts the whole thing in such a good framework that I could better than I can do. Swami Trigunatita, this is probably um, Gurudash. Swami Trigunatita had many outstanding qualities. He was boundlessly loving, endlessly patient. His will was indomitable, his mind brilliant. He was at times eccentric. His way of life, his way of work, his mode of expression were all his own and now and then astonishing. Here some of the signs, here are some of the signs he had printed by one of the devotees who was a printer, ornately done, and mounted on the monastery walls and uh, hung in the monastery rooms. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Live like a hermit, work like a horse. <laughs> Ours but to do and die, but you will not die. Imagine living with signs like that around you. He lectured in Los Angeles, again at the Burbank Theater building, and the Brent Hall, wherever that was. Brent Hall. I suppose I could look them up on Google. I haven't done them. He made some trips, one to Virginia City, one to the Grand Canyon. He also had a short holiday on Catalina Island. <laughs> His lectures were precisely analytical and logical not emotionally moving, and we have many records of his lectures, a number of them, from Ujala, Miss Ida Ansel, who recorded them. It was his, his baby, as he called her baby. Well, it was Turiananda who called her baby. He proposed the building of a temple and bought the plot. And in 1905, over much opposition from the members, some of the members of the society, the first two floors of the old temple were built and dedicated. He tried to start a convent, and that didn't, didn't succeed. That was one of his failed attempts. Another was a community at Concord, out at Concord, tried to start a community of householders who would buy their homes and live on the property, build homes on the property and form a community. That didn't get off the ground. But April 1906 came, and you know, the earthquake. 
the earthquake and fire which ravaged San Francisco City. Fortunately, it never got down to the marina or Pacific Heights. Those parts of the city escaped that fire. Very few parts did. And uh, the temple was saved. In 1908, the third floor, with all its roof of domes, strange turrets, you've seen pictures, how funny it looks. All of those went up in the 1908. Where he got the money, nobody knows. It was just like magic, it just came. That small group, that small community of, of believers and devotees could hardly have raised the money to build that temple, but somehow it was done. He started a magazine called The Voice of India. You can find old copies of it in the archives, which ran for some time before it failed, fell, fell apart. A few days after Christmas in 1915, he was giving a lecture after Christmas giving a lecture on the platform, a young man came up with a bag, and from the bag he took a bomb, and he threw a bomb onto the platform. The Swami reeled and fell back through the entrance through which you come to the platform. He lived about three weeks and died. So we have a martyr, we have a martyred Swami in our history. I, I never could find sufficient thanks in my heart uh, for the building that he erected. and the monastery that he made.